This is a Squeeze podcast. We're your shortcut to being informed. As we head towards the end of the year, climate change is going to be the talk of the town. That's because in just over a month's time, around 25,000 people will descend on Glasgow in Scotland in what's been called the most significant climate gathering since the Paris Agreement was nutted out in 2015. So ahead of that, this shortcut will explain why this conference is such a big deal, what we can expect in the lead up, where Australia is at with its climate commitments and why it's tricky. Squeeze Shortcuts is the backstory to the big news stories. I'm Kate Watson. And I'm Claire Kimball. As always, Claire, basics first. This big conference is called COP26. What's a COP? This is all about the United Nations and their lingo. So I'm afraid, (laughs) strap yourself in. (laughs) A COP is a conference of the parties and that takes the form of a summit that's held every year, except in COVID times. We missed last year, but we're back on track now. And these these COPs are essentially an arm of the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And it's all part of the United Nations role in taking forward the climate change agenda, and that was first established at the first Earth Summit in 1992 in Rio. And what happens is each member country brings their climate policy negotiators to the COP, and there's usually observers from hundreds of non-government organisations, businesses and faith-based organisations, and that's how we very quickly get to 25,000 people attending. Yeah. A lot of people go to the COP. Do they all sit in theatre style, Claire? How do the logistics of this actually work and how do they get anything done? <laughs> how they get it done is through a traditional Zulu community meeting style method and it's called Indabar. What Indabar does is gather key people together. They're only allowed to have one other aide or advisor as part of it. So plenty of others can observe or listen, but the main sticking points are discussed face-to-face with just those key people involved. It was a method Claire used in the now well-referenced Paris meeting in 2015 to rave reviews. Yeah, and just to recap on the Paris Agreement, what those 190 countries plus the European Union agreed to was to limit global warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius, preferably to 1.5 degrees compared to pre-industrial levels. And that was a big step forward. But recent reports from the IPCC say that the world won't achieve that based on the current trends. Just to clarify, the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Its job is to provide scientific advice to the UN and every five years present their climate assessment report. Their most recent report was released in August and it painted a picture where droughts, floods, fires and warmer temperatures worsen as the world locks into that 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature increase. That report mentions Australia specifically, particularly threats to agriculture on the East Coast. And the report also states that Australia's land areas have already warmed by around 1.4 degrees since 1910. We'll get to Australia a bit more in a bit, but first, it was the IPCC that recommended in its 2018 special report that a net zero emissions target by 2050 was the way to go to limit global warming. What does that actually mean? 
It basically means achieving a balance between greenhouse gases that are emitted into the atmosphere and those taken out through reforestation or technologies such as carbon capture and storage. So you take out the emissions that you're putting in. That's why the net part in that net zero is important. Yeah, and as part of the agenda for Glasgow's COP26 meeting, countries are being asked to come forward with ambitious 2030 emissions reductions targets to align to that net zero by 2050 target. That summit, as we said, kicks off in just a few weeks. So hopefully we've given people a sense of just what a big deal this summit will be. Yeah, it starts on 1 November. It goes for two weeks. There's around 120 world leaders from nations like the US, the UK, China, and maybe Australia. (laughs) Uh, They'll attend along with Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth and also Pope Francis. You say maybe, Claire, our Prime Minister Scott Morrison hasn't committed to going yet. There will be someone there representing Australia, but we're not sure if it'll be him. Stand by for that announcement. In the meantime, he's got a bit on his plate in relation to Australia's climate commitments. Let's get into that now. There's pressure on the Morrison government when it comes to COP26 in Glasgow. As things currently stand, Prime Minister Scott Morrison says Australia will reach net zero emissions preferably by 2050. That preferably isn't a formal commitment. So as it stands, our official position on greenhouse gas emissions reductions is that from the original Paris pledge of 2015, that's to cut emissions by 26 to 28% by 2030. And that's something our Energy Minister, Angus Taylor, has said Australia will meet and beat. But as we march closer towards COP26, the government is coming under increasing pressure to formally commit to greater emissions reductions. And that's been hard because of the politics within the coalition. There's some members of the nationals who have been resisting deeper commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Their traditional constituency are those who work in what's called trade-intensive exposed industries. So those include agriculture and resources. And the concern is that signing up to cut emissions further will increase costs in those industries and potentially threaten their futures. We should point out that there is also some within the Liberal Party, Claire, who share those concerns. But perhaps the most vocal this week has been Victorian Nationals MP Darren Chester. He wants the party to do more and he's in the news because he's taking a break from the Nationals over the issue. Yeah, and what people like Chester say is that Australia can be part of the solution to climate change because we're a developed country and we have lots of potential via our natural assets as well as talent in innovation. Uh, They don't want Australia to be locked out of any opportunities or be exposed to global penalties that might come if we don't commit to emissions reductions when other nations are. So there's some angst to say the least, but it does seem like the coalition, even in the last few weeks, has moved towards embracing a more formal commitment of that net zero emissions by 2050. Yeah, it seems to be. And last week, the leader of the Nationals, Barnaby Joyce, gave a strong indication that the party will support a net zero emissions by 2050 position. He said, if it does not leave regional areas hurt, he's also said that his colleagues will have the ultimate say and there could be some strings attached to that, potentially lots of taxpayer dollars to fund adjustment packages for affected industries. On the same day that Joyce sort of warmed up that argument, 
Parliament, his colleague, a Liberal, and our Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, was a bit more gung-ho. Yeah, he was. He said in a speech to industry that the costs of capital could increase if there was a false perception that Australia wasn't doing its bit in the transition to a lower carbon energy future. And, of course, for many Liberals, their city constituencies are demanding greater action on climate change. So there's pressures on both ends of the spectrum. We're really getting into the politics of it now, but it's super important when it comes to this topic. Some of those Liberal MPs will be facing threats from the Greens in their seats as an election comes round, as well as a new generation of climate independents, as they're called. A good example of that is Zali Stegall in the seat of Warringah in Sydney. She beat former Prime Minister Tony Abbott for that seat in the last election, largely on this issue. She, along with the Greens, are essentially calling for an immediate halt on all fossil fuel production. That's the fringe parties, Claire. What about Labor? Labor has its own wedge in the climate space, given their traditional support base as heavy manufacturing and mining workers. Labor's climate spokesman is Chris Bowen. He claims that Labor will adopt stronger targets should it be elected, and he's stated support for net zero by 2050, but the details are a wait and see. Of course, what Labor eventually commits to is hugely relevant as we head into an election cycle. An election could happen at any time. What about outside of our political parties? Some of the strongest voices urging the government to commit to net zero by 2050 has been the National Farmers Federation. There's also APIA, which is the peak body of oil and gas producers. Uh, The once reluctant but now climate champion is the Business Council of Australia uh, and also the Australian Energy Council all argue that targets for reductions can only help investment certainty in the long run. So that's where things stand right now in Australia, a fair bit. A bit more could happen across the next couple of weeks, though, as Scott Morrison and his government settles their position ahead of that COP26 summit. It's not just a local issue for him, though. Let's take a look now at how Australia's handling of all of this is playing out on the world stage. emissions has been a tricky issue politically here in Australia, but also as far as managing our key export industries in mining, gas, agriculture, to name a few, Claire. On the world stage, there isn't a lot of sympathy for that. Not a lot of sympathy for that. And it's often cited that Australia is a top per capita emitter of greenhouse gases, along with the fact that we're a major fossil fuel exporter. What the federal government says is that there's a range of measures in place that have seen emissions across the economy fall to the lowest level per capita in the last three decades, despite growth in exports and in industry. So per capita, of course, means per head of population in a country. What does it actually mean when you say fossil fuel exporter? Yeah, so there's a couple of things to note. We do a lot of mining in Australia and a lot of that is exported. It's a big money earner for Australia and digging the stuff up is a big contributor to our emissions. The other thing to note when it comes to our emissions is that we have an electricity sector that's dependent on burning coal and that adds up when you look at emissions per person. 
person, but that's domestically driven. Mm. What the government says is that it's on track to do better than the cuts promised in Paris in 2015. But the fact that our per head of population emissions are higher than our major trading partners, including the United States, that's something that gets a lot of attention internationally. One of the arguments from those who say signing up to that target isn't necessary is that we're a small nation, so it doesn't make a difference what we do. That argument is that Australia contributes 1.3% of global carbon dioxide emissions from human activity. So do we really matter? Critics of that line of thinking, though, say that our population is 0.3% of the global total. So if we want to be taken seriously on the world stage by anyone on any issue, we need to do better on climate change. Uh, It's also important to note that emissions that come from, say, burning coal in countries where we've exported it to, that doesn't count to our total. So that's something that's looked at quite a bit in relation to our global role. Safe to say there's pressure at home and abroad for Australia to commit to net zero by 2050. Yeah, and look, there's 130-odd countries that have already agreed to that target, so we're a bit isolated on that, particularly as a developed country. As we said, we'll see how that plays out in the coming weeks. To return to COP26, though, Claire, as we wrap up, what does success look like for those advocating for more to be done to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees? So once at COP, delegates will have two weeks of negotiations to hopefully get something down on paper. Uh, The first week is set aside for government officials to discuss the technical details and the second week is dominated by ministerial and heads of states meetings. Uh, They will try and nut out the issues that couldn't be resolved in the first week. So they're the deal closers, if you like. You say the technical details, that's putting it pretty lightly, I'd say. There's a few technical details when it comes to these things. And we're talking about things like finalising carbon market mechanisms that would allow the trading of carbon credits between countries, uh, implementing a mechanism to fund loss and damage experienced by vulnerable countries to climate disasters, uh, how to fund a $100 billion finance package for those poorer countries dealing with climate change and how that's going to be distributed. Also how to integrate nature-based solutions for carbon management like forests and ecosystems. So there's just a few little things. And look, that requires a whole other shortcut, Claire. But for now, (laughs) that's your shortcut to Australia's climate agenda in 2021. On to our recommendations. Claire, each episode of Squeeze Shortcuts, we recommend some further reading, listening or watching. I'm handballing to you. There's too much to take in already. <laughs> no further reading required. Look, if you're interested in these things, the IPCC's latest assessment report, that one that came out just a few months ago, yeah. and the observations for Australia, there's a good ABC article on that. I'm not telling you to dive into that exact report. Go to the ABC article on it. They summarise it pretty well. As I said, plenty to get across on this topic. Thanks as always for tuning in to Squeeze Shortcuts. If you have a recommendation, hello at thesqueeze.com.au. Until next week. Listener.